0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. They signed their names, each one of the members of Congress elected to enact laws, and in this case, civil rights laws that they knew to be right. And they knew had a majority of the House of Representatives. They were blocked by just a few people, committee heads, one in particular, powerful congressman who could defy even a majority of House members unless they signed. House leadership wouldn't be happy. It never is. It's not the way things are done. They'd be signing a visible document subject to scrutiny and retribution. Yet here at this time in 1960, these congresspersons such as Melvin Price of St. Louis, Hawk on Defense, liberal on everything else, Ralph Rivers, first voting representative in Congress from the new state of Alaska, Dan Rostenkowski, an obscure Illinois deputy sheriff, the new congressman at this time, soon to have a rise, and a fall in the House of Representatives. These members felt civil rights needed a hearing, so they signed, so did August Freeman Hawkins, backroom achiever, who had passed 300 bills in his lifetime, a California representative who dreamed of an America with no unemployment. He signs. And as I look at this petition, bleeding through in ballpoint pen ink, Future President Gerald Ford, at this time a Michigan congressman, he signs the petition. Roughly throughout his congressional career, Ford was there for most bills on civil rights. His vote on this discharge petition was easier. It wasn't his leadership he was defying signing this petition. It was, he was a GOP member. Leadership was in control of the Democrats. In particular, one Democrat. Was blocking this legislation. That was Howard Smith of Virginia. He's the head of the Rules Committee. It's President Eisenhower's Civil Rights Bill. He wants to strengthen the bill he had already passed in 1957. You know that's a good bill, but we have to go after the people who are blowing up churches and schools, who are defying court orders and just saying nothing. You know, just just fighting it in court and. Also, we have to strengthen the laws around voting and denying people the right to vote and add more penalties. And his bill does all these things. Smith doesn't want it. It passes Emanuel Sellers' Judiciary Committee, but Howard Smith is in charge of the Rules Committee. Smith is smart to be the chairman of this committee, and he worked hard to get there because it can control legislation in the House. This is a obscure committee up until the 1880s. It was a... Committee of the House that used to meet in back rooms and decide rules for the House and change them once in a while, big deal, who cares, boom, bang the gavel, good meeting guys, no one cared. Then in the 1880s, Thomas Reed, powerful Speaker of the House, realized that this could be a way to even further the control of the leadership over what was going on in Congress. Because instead of just playing general rules for the House, we can have rules for each piece of legislation. And not to get too arcane with everything, but you can attach rules about, okay, there's no amendments on this bill, or only a limited amount of amendments. You can also use the the rules to delay a bill and, in effect, never get a hearing. And that's what happens with Eisenhower's civil rights bill. Howard Smith has it delayed for at least six months. Emanuel Seller acting now not as a House Judiciary Chair, his committee already passed the bill, but as a member of the House, starts a petition. Goes over to the clerk, the petitions forms are available, and he gets congressmen to sign it, including future President Gerald Ford. He gets 150 to sign, he gets 200 to sign, he gets 209 members of Congress to sign his petition. But it's not enough. Because what he needs at this time is 218, or actually in 1960 due to a quirk having to do with Alaska And Hawaii being added 219, but now it's 218. One half of the members of Congress, plus one, a majority, to sign his petition to force it, to jump over Howard Smith's head and force the civil rights bill into the House floor. With 209, he does not get it. What they were trying to do is called a discharge petition. It discharges the committee, in this case, the Rules Committee. It relieves the Rules Committee of its authority. And as you can imagine, House leadership... Doesn't like that. Committee chairs do not like that. Put that aside for a moment. When you when we say discharge, read authority. So if he were to get two hundred nineteen signatures, then Howard Smith no longer has any authority related to this bill. And to do this, you need to show that the bill is so popular that it can move right to the House floor as a privileged motion, forego committee debates, possible amendments, all of that stuff. So to do that. You need to show that majority signing your petition. Ostensibly, all of those people, plus more, are going to vote for the bill once it gets on the floor. So it deserves a hearing. They fell short of that demonstration they needed to send a bill to the floor. Not so for another member, another Republican, some 40 years later, Christopher Shays of Connecticut, who was attempting to this time go around his own party's leadership, his speaker, Dennis Hastert and GOP leadership as they controlled the House, and passed the House answer to the McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform bill. The House version is called Shays Meehan, one Republican, one Democrat. A lot of support for this bill, three years of of promoting it. McCain is a powerful senator, of allies in the Senate, but the White House, President Bush, does not want this bill. He doesn't want to veto it or sign it. He's not going to be able to veto it. It's too popular, and he doesn't want to sign it. So don't give it to me. Dennis Hastert, the Speaker of the House, resists getting it on the floor. How can a speaker do that? By not scheduling it, by, uh, by using the committees to block it, numerous ways that a leadership can block a bill it doesn't want. Yet, Shays is successful. He obtains more than the needed 208 signatures. He compels a vote and leads the bill discussion. Leadership was opposed, so they're now in opposition. And it passes the House and Senate with Democrats and Republicans supporting it. And President Bush does end up signing that bill. McCain-Feingold end up changing much. A lot of people say no. But at the time, it was seen as a great achievement. Yet, what Shays did from a petition to law, is exceedingly rare. Last 30 years, you're talking about two laws. That's it. Yet, it's something you're hearing a lot about now because there's been just such a tight house between the two parties. And also, within the Republican Party, there's some fracturing of different types of groups. Well, there may be opportunities for Republicans and Democrats to work together on something. Say, you can't crane funding. that a speaker or leadership might want to block. So let's talk a bit about discharge petitions and why it's so rare. Something that seems as easy as signing your name to a piece of paper um, doesn't happen more. Okay, let's discuss first how a bill becomes a law. A member puts a bill in the hopper, reference to a grain hopper. That's where everything starts. It's a bucket near the house clerk same as it might've been in the turn of the 20th century, it's there now. You put your bill in, it's then referred to a proper committee. That's either done by the parliamentarian or in some cases, the speaker of the house. So it can be multiple committees too. If for instance, some money expended, well, that might go to finance or ways or means or something like that. If it's a judiciary bill, but it also has something to do with transportation funding, well, it might go to transportation. In the case of multiple committees, The parts of your bill will be separated. So the example I like to use is I'm I'm Congressman Carlson. I want a bill to give each park in the United States $1,000. Yeah, real lefty dream, right? $1,000 so that they can be green and clean. And, you know, that could go to finance. That could go to a subcommittee on parks somewhere within the House structure. The bill will be split up into parts. And each of those committees has to pass each of its part for it to reach the House floor. Those committees might want to suggest amendments and maybe pass an amendment. No, $1,000 too much. Let's cut it to $500. Um, let's limit to only parks that are more than two square miles. So my legislation might look very different from the hopper to those committees. The other thing is whether the committees want to work on it at all. Have I been a good party member? Does the leadership Owe me something for a favor I did them. Things outside the house, the right lobbyists, the right associations is the um, American Society for Clean Parks for my bill. They're going to help pressure other congressmen get this out. Am I having the right lunches and bringing the right congresspeople to the monocle or bistro B? The lunches with the right lobbyists, or did I do the right citizens petition drive to get? more congressmen on board. All of these are going to be factors that are going to help in the reality of moving my bill forward. Now, my bill is placed on the calendar of the committee to which it's assigned. If I don't see it on that calendar, that means leadership probably didn't like my bill, the committee didn't like my bill, equivalent to killing it. But if they do approve it, they're going to consider it. That's going to take some time. They may offer amendments they may seek hearings. They may seek more commentary, more information from experts. And they can even do a, what's called a clean bill where it's so changed that it's like a new bill and my old bill is discarded. After the whatever committee, like the committee on parks is done, is done with it. It's going to go to the rules committee, see if they want to attach rules. Can any member offer any amendment? Do you have to bring amendments to the Rules Committee and let the Rules Committee decide if they like the amendment to be included in the rule around the bill? Can you just make it a closed rule, eliminate any amendment? How much time are we going to allow for debate? And the only way to get around these rules, that's why the Rules Committee is so popular, is you need a two-thirds vote. Congress, in whole, if the bill is going to be scheduled, in whole, debates, amends the bill. Time is divided equally between proponents and opponents. I as the sponsoring member, would probably be the one leading some of those debates. The committee decides how much time to allot, pass the bill, and the Senate agrees, goes to the president, signed, it's now law. And I feel pretty good. That's a lot of work. And there's a lot of opportunities for my bill on parks to be defeated or not be heard at all. If I don't like it, I get my fellow members. I'm probably going to need members of the opposite party to get that discharge petition signed. I used to be able to do it in secret. Now that's no longer possible. You have to notify and publish signatures that you have. Now, so I have to wait and give the committee 30 days. If after 30 days they don't act, I can file a discharge petition to get my bill out of that committee there's a couple of complications. There's there's two different types of discharge petition. One is a rules-based discharge petition where I attach a package. I act as my own rules committee and attach rules around it. There's another where it's just a straight petition that goes right to the House floor. These days, in the, in the few times that it's been done, discharge petitions usually have some kind of rules attaching around it about who can make amendments, the debate time, and things like that. And you have to make sure that all the people who are signing the petition on the issue, say civil rights or campaign finance reform, also agree to those rules. Like, oh, I, I didn't know we couldn't make amendments. Uh, I'm not voting for it now. So things like that, you have to make sure your, your people are in line. You know, in a way, it's magic. You, the representative from Horatio County, can, like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the movie, take the gavel from the speaker's hand, or more accurately, force his hand. Get your legislation passed. You can make law, real law. You can bypass all of that Washington swamp that people talk about. It's it's right there in House rules for the taking. You can make the House do what you want. And it all comes from a moment when Speaker Joe Cannon, who held up legislation, particularly any progressive legislation, anything about government regulation of companies at all, anything about trusts even things that Theodore Roosevelt wanted. Uncle Joe Cannon, he was called, because he would look at you with a smiling face and hold up your bills. One day, he's challenged on the House floor by George Norris, a progressive member, a Republican, just like Cannon, but he's of a different ideology. Norris has this bill hiding in his coat. He's been keeping it, just waiting for an opportunity and to introduce it, and Cannon recognizes him. It'll be the biggest mistake that he makes because Norris says, I have a bill, sir, to change the House rules. House rules are mentioned in the Constitution. Anything related in this House to the Constitution is privileged by our rules. So it must be voted on now, sir. And Cannon realizes what is up and says, as the presiding officer, no, I don't agree. Your bill is out of order. So, within this bill are great limits to the speaker's power, and discharge petitions are one of them. <laughs> there, there's no way that canon would be behind creating this uh, discharge petition procedure. No, it's a progressive procedure, goes back to that 1910 squabble. And the interesting thing with some of today's events is that a group of Democrats, in fact, a large part of group Democrats, join with a small amount of Republican House members and overturn um, the Speaker's ruling that Norris's bill is out of order. It has to be voted on. They get to gather Democrats and progressive Republicans agree on what they can agree on. They don't agree on everything that George Norris wants to do because, you know, the Democrats want to have the Speakership someday and they want it to be a powerful office. But there are some limits placed on the Speaker. And that bill passes and it's law. And the rules change passes, it just needs a majority, and it's in effect today. It's enhanced in the 1930s, it's changed in the 1990s. Now, in case discharge positions, because of that origin, and because of the examples that I gave you, civil rights and campaign finance reform, might seem the stuff of the liberal imagination. Well, by nature, it can be done for anything. You know, it, it probably has a slight edge Because discharge petitions are about the making of law and not the blocking of law. So for anyone who might be out there saying like, I just love when Congress is out of session because they don't do anything anyway. Well, you're an enemy of discharge petitions because discharge petitions is about passing more laws. But I will say in 1985, the Fire Owners Protection Act, which today we would call the gun show loophole for transactions at gun shows, was bottled up in the House. Judiciary Chair Peter Rodino wasn't going to, you know, let's consider this bill 12th of never. Backed by the NRA and a bipartisan coalition, a discharge petition was pushed, more than 218 sign it, and the bill goes to the floor where it's voted on. Having a lobby group is essential for one of these discharge petitions. Having great popular support that cuts across parties, that just for some reason doesn't want. You have during the Obama administration when the renewal of the import export bank is up. And there's a conservative congressman from Texas who's heading up, um, believe it's finance committee doesn't want it. But there are Republicans and Democrats who do, and they can agree. They meet, overturn, get the export bill renewed, and it becomes, you know, President Obama signs and it becomes law. In that case, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, was happy to see that discharge petition. So it's not always the case that you're the in opposition to a Speaker. Um, generally, it's been true more times than not that Speakers and majority leaders do not like to see things moved by petitions in this way. After Shays Meehan passed, House leadership makes it clear, don't do this again. We will be punishing you. That means your bills aren't going to get heard if you join one of these discharge petitions again. And there's been so few of them, so few of them um, in recent times.
1: Let me just talk in general terms today, since no matter how many numbers I give the press right now, it doesn't satisfy them.
0: Now this rule I'm describing is probably one of the most arcane topics I've talked about in some time. But there was a moment, a brief moment, where discharge petitions were on the national radar. Number one, we cannot spend our children's money. It's just that it was 30 years ago. In 1993, Representative Anofi is trying to pass a balanced budget amendment. And they've probably got support in the House to do it if they can pressure some Democrats. Democrats are running the House at this time, who are in more conservative-leaning congressional districts to get a balanced budget amendment out. Maybe they can do it. Leadership is holding Representative Anofi's bill up. And one of the things he's noticing is that as discharge petitions are filed, as they were, by conservative congressmen to get that balanced budget amendment out of the committees that are holding it up and onto the House floor for a vote, members... That had co-sponsored his bill, including two members from Oklahoma who were Democrats, who would go out on campaigning and telling their constituents, I'm for a balanced budget, I'm for a balanced budget, are co-sponsoring his bill. But when it comes to the discharge petition, they're not signing it. But that's okay, right? Because their names are secret. I know if he goes on one conservative talk show, visits. And he's on Rush Limbaugh talking about this issue. We've got to make these names public on these discharge petitions. Now, I'm not just trying to espouse conservatism. It's what he tells listeners. That's what he tells the committee when they'll eventually have hearings on this. Said, you know, whoever is bringing up a discharge petition, it should all be public. Whether it's a liberal issue, conservative issue. Right now, I'm talking about budget, balanced budget amendment. He brings us the attention of Ross Perot, who had just run and got 19% of the vote and kind of like Good government, let's do things differently, bring the American people to the table.
1: We are looking on the edge of a revolution of young people who are starting to realize that we, our generation, have put them $4 trillion in debt, and they don't like it, and they shouldn't. Russ
0: Perot starts supporting this drive.
1: And again, every time you get into see, I'm the only guy that talks numbers. Mm-hmm. I love this. Nobody else will even talk about it. I've, I've said, it's like a crazy aunt in the basement. Everybody knows she's there, but nobody talks about her. I'm talking about it.
0: I know if he goes on another talk show, another t- eventually he's on 62 different talk shows during this period, kind of whooping up the issue. And then he does something else. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent
1: and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan,
0: but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Faceoff launches April 9th.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: He makes the names of the people who signed his discharge petition public. And they don't include those two congressman who co-sponsored bill. In fact, those two jump off his bill after they see that he's going to expose the discharge petition names. So, in the Wall Street Journal. The Washington Post, not necessarily a conservative newspaper, gets on this bandwagon. And so now, Anofi does a discharge petition on the subject of discharge petitions. In other words, a bill to make discharge petition signers public. And what he wants is that the House clerk will just constantly report on discharge petitions. So like every week, this is the current House procedure. Every week, you get a, a, a list of who's signed a discharge petition. With this tremendous popular support, Enofi's you know, discharge petition, not on the balanced budget amendment, but on making the names of discharge petition signers public early on, gets the 218 signatures. Not only that, Inofi you know, says, I have eight more too. I got the two hundred eighteen, so I'm gonna force a vote. I also have eight more. The rules committee tries to respond. Okay, they try to come up with what you would call a close bill, hoping that he'll lose some of his signature signers and what they'll what the the House leadership offers. It's good to have a real-world example for this concept, because if you talk about a district petition, what's the basic truth here? It has to be rare that something can both get a majority of the House, but also just can't get voted on in the floor. And it's true. It's in situations where legislation is obviously being held down by leadership for various reasons. In this case, there's a lot of support for balanced budget, even in 1993, even in Democratic districts, you know, but leadership doesn't want that to go forward. There's a lot of popular support for this issue of disclosing the names of discharge petition signers. The leadership doesn't want that to go forward. So that's why you know if he has to do a discharge petition to get his discharge petition bill out. But presumably, if something's popular, right, you should just be able to use the normal levers of Congress. And so because there's a 30-day wait on discharge petitions, what you have is a chance while the person's gaining signatures of leadership knows about the petition, that they could come up with a bill that's close, that's reasonable. Maybe you knock off some of the supporters of a Novi's bill and you get your own leadership bill passed. And that's a very common tactic to defend against a discharge petition. That's one of the reasons why you don't see law enacted by too many of them, because sometimes they're having effect in a different way, that there's a clone or similar leadership bill that goes out instead. After all, it, it we're talking about concepts that have majority support. Leadership kind of doesn't want to stand in the way too much. So what they're going to say is, okay. We'll make the number the, the members public like you want to know, but here's what we're going to do. This is Joe Moakley, the Rules Committee at, at the time. We're going to now increase the number of signatures you need for a discharge petition if it's going to be public. We're going to make it two-thirds. Absolutely not. I know responds. And he continues with his drive. They have hearings. Here's the New York Times public mood bolsters effort to end House secrecy's rule. Fueled by the support of Ross Perot and conservative talk show hosts, Republicans are gaining ground in an effort to gut an arcane House procedural rule that allows members to block legislation in secret while supporting it in public. The insurgency's progress is a measure of a skeptical public mood about the way Congress performs. And the growing number of Democrats who are joining the effort demonstrates that members of both parties feel they must respond to the public's mood or face the consequences at the polls next year. What's the argument when you've got Ross Perot and all these talk show hosts on the other side? Like, what's the argument you're going to make for secrecy? It's always a tough argument in politics. But here's what Joe Moakley and the Democratic leadership in the House of 1993 argue. If you make the signers of petitions public, special interest groups are going to see this as a great way to get legislation through. And I know the committees sound like this bureaucratic procedure and everything like that. But actually, if you look at it, Many members, even when they're putting a bill forward, wouldn't mind having the committee's review, having hearings on it, making sure the legislation is good. Members don't want to be held hostage to an outside group that's going to do this. This is what um in the Rules Committee hearing about this discharge petition issue, Anthony a uh, re- representative from California and a Democrat, a member of the Rules Committee, says, you know, this is a procedure we've had since the 1930s and it's worked just fine. Because I I'm aware that it seems obscure. It seems hard to justify. But it's not true that everyone who co-sponsors a bill wants to necessarily sign a discharge petition. A co-sponsor of a bill may want it to go through the committee procedure. As he says he wants committee review, he wants hearings, wants better legislation. They may want to be able to offer amendments, which at least one form of discharge petition doesn't allow. It's not something anyone, I think, Billinson says wants us in a routine basis. And what they're worried about is that, here's what um, they're worried about is from uh, Representative Oberstar of Minnesota brings up, I don't want special interest to put my name on a mailing list and have me flooded with people that I don't represent. This is in a pre-social media era. Just wait, Mr. Oberstar, just wait for what's gonna happen to representatives. But have me flooded with people I don't represent, arguing my vote on a purely procedural matter. In other words, keep the special interests out of our congressional mechanisms. It's okay. If they want to advocate for a bill, have at it. They want me to protect the redwoods. They want me to chop down the redwoods. Whatever it is, have at it. Call my office. Tell me, uh, I'm happy to take a phone call from his constituent about this particular issue. I'm not sure if I want even a constituent arguing with me about procedural matters. And I definitely don't want people outside my district doing so. It's going to lead to a stampede where they're going to say, this is great. We don't have to go through Congress anymore. All we have to do is get discharge petitions on our special interest issues that we want. This is the argument of the House leadership supported by Speaker Foley. They're unable to get it through. In the end, all but two of all the House Republicans and 44 Democrats sign a notice petition, gets a House floor vote, it is successful, and it is now an official House rule. Flash forward to 2023. I just walked off the House floor where moments ago I filed a discharge petition so that we can ensure America is able to pay its bills. House Democrats turned heads on Capitol Hill last week when news surfaced of their proposed procedural gambit to raise the federal government's debt limit. Relying on the century-old House Discharge Rule, minority party Democrats aimed to force a vote on a measure to lift the debt ceiling. And now you have Hakeem Jeffries and other members proposing to have used the discharge petition in order to get a debt ceiling through. Don't count on the House Discharge Rule to raise the debt limit. That's what, uh, Brookings says, it's ill-suited for swift surgical strikes. Democrats will struggle to secure even a handful of Republicans. Nothing can be ruled out, but it's unlikely to resolve the impasse. Despite the comments from those opposing ANOFA in 1993, that special interests would start using this mechanism, Lawmakers have successfully discharged less than 4% of 639 petitions introduced since 1935. And very few have ever become law at all. We talked about the two recent ones. McCain-Feingold, Import-Export Bank. Uh, and no fees doesn't count because that wasn't a law, that's a rule. But I guess you could count it if you like. Other than that, you got Nation's First Minimum Wage Law, 1938, Federal Pay Law, 1959, and that's it. So it's, it's four laws, the entire history of the House. But still, again, it is working quietly behind the scenes as a threat that could be used. The easiest Counter that any house leadership has to a discharge petition is simply to go after those members either in an intimidating way, like "Hey, you're doing this to me, and we're going to seek retribution." You'll be lucky if you you hear another one of your bills in this corridor, or if you get that seat to the Ways and Means Committee that you wanted, or the other way. What do you want if you take your name off this discharge petition? You know, going after members that's probably the easiest ways. There are a few other weapons. Another example of the discharge position that was successful involves the Equal Rights Amendment. In 1970, Martha Griffiths, a congressman from Michigan, was angered that Emanuel Seller, New York congressman we talked about earlier, who was gung-ho on civil rights, anything involving religious, African Americans, but when it came to gender, when it came to sex, he was opposed. You cannot change nature, he would say, as he bottled up in his own committee, legislation around the Equal Rights Amendment. Griffiths decides to push for the bill. He calls her a delightful, delectable lady. But you can't change nature. Feminist groups in the 70s did not like Seller for this reason. He's actually going to be defeated in a primary by Liz Holtzman in a campaign that's all about women in politics. Griffiths is able to get a petition, get the 218 signatures, get it to the House floor, also gets the Senate to pass. The amendment goes out. It has not been ratified by states at this time. And we have all that side argument about whether it still can be and all of that stuff. But the whole reason there's even an equal rights amendment debate out there is that Martha Griffiths gets it out with a discharge petition. So this begs the question, if you can do it for things like the ERA or civil rights or... Um, or gun show loopholes, immigration reform—it's been used for when all of these things. If any member can do this, why not just do discharge petitions all the time, like for everything? And especially when you look at the current situation that we're in, why not just keep doing discharge petitions? Uh, if you can't get you know House members together on everything. Why can't a group of Democrats, a group of Republicans meet and just decide we're going to run this Congress by discharge petition? Well, the first reason is, is that it's a sloppy way to do things. You'd rather have the establishment, the procedures to be followed. It involves a lot of delays. So you have to wait 30 days to even um, to file your discharge petition. So the committees get a chance to act on your legislation, amend it, move it forward, show that they're moving it. You're going to have to keep a group of unruly, often bipartisan members who disagree on a lot of other things together in a coalition to get this bill passed. They're going to be subject to, at all times, to retribution, first of all, for just being in support of this bill, for working with the opposite party, and for using the discharge procedure at all, which will embarrass the leadership. In other words, if you're using, if you're, what's going to be argued by a Speaker of the House is if, if a member of Congress is signing discharge petitions, they're saying, my leadership's no good. So those discussions will all be had. You also got to remember, if you're a member who's pushing a law by discharge petition, you're now taking the responsibility that leadership has. And you're going to see how hard it is <laughs> to, to run a Congress. You know, you you think it's so easy. You're going to need a nice collection of signatures. It's not probably going to work if you get 219 or something like that. You're going to need like 230, 250 would help. Not everybody's going to be in the room when you need those votes. In 1994, a rogue, I'd call him um, a bit of a renegade, Democrat Rob Andrews of New Jersey, willing to vote against leadership all the time. He wanted A to Z spending cuts on everything. And they got, he got together with a uh, Republican to push that. Once they're notified, so since 1993, you've got to notify. Foley and Gephardt went to work on members and reduced their coalition down to where they no longer had an effective majority. The bill was defeated. So you're not going to see that many discharge petitions. It's a very cumbersome way to act in the House. And but that's also belies the power that it has as the threat. Discharge petitions have changed, uh have, have greatly affected the legislation in the House. Uh the most prominent example being the nineteen sixty four Civil Rights Act that Lyndon Johnson wanted to get through the threat of a discharge petition helped propel that bill through the House. And it's not the only time that the threat of a petition has been used. If that mechanism didn't exist at all, if a speaker was able to just bottle things up, then everything is subject to the vote of one person or a small group of people. As it is, that's still kind of the case, but you do have this procedure to get around. And there are a few issues where one could imagine um, a very popular bill might get through. Usually, though, leadership doesn't want to be in opposition to such popular legislation. It wants to be able to take credit for passing bills. So they're going to find a way to maybe get a modified bill that they like. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Um, if you like the program... Please tell someone about it. That's what helps spread the word. I also want to tell you about our Patreon, where you can get content. We have there the uh, LBJ series. We have a couple of extras that aren't available yet to people here. And um, it also helps support the program. This is what I do now pretty much full time. Um, Working on a few other things that eventually might come to fruition. But right now, this is what I do full-time. I want to thank you for listening.